Welcome to The Emergent Human, where we explore optimizing health and body spirituality and post-conventional living. I'm Michael Osterlink, a therapist, coach, educator, and I'm your host. Quick shout out to my friend Erwin LaCour and his new online program called MoveNat Mobility, which is a revolutionary four-week program built with simple, practical movements that can be applied to everyday life. You can find more at www.movenat.com. Today's show is brought to you by Cosper Scafidi, an amazing body worker in the Northern Virginia area, who has integrated different somatic practices into his work, including rolfing. To learn more about Cosper's work, you can visit on his website, www.cosperscafidi.com. Our guest today is Luba Vengalova, who has written about the future of learning for media outlets such as The Atlantic and NPR, PBS, the Mindship websites, and has co-founded and managed several pioneering mixed-age co-learning groups in the Washington, D.C. area. In 2020, she launched The Hub, www.thehub.community, as an online co-learning community for ages 9 to 12. It is eventually envisioned to grow into an all-age co-learning, co-working community with both online and physical presence that anyone can freely replicate in their chosen locale. Hello, Luba. Hello, Michael. Thanks for having me on. Yes, it's uh, great to finally have you on. You and I have been talking for years and years, which is is very (laughs) cool. Um, So one of the critiques that people such as yourself have who've explored education, the conventional education system, is that the authoritarian industrial model really does not serve the full education of children. And in your explorations, you have discovered other more child-centric models, which actually serve the full potential of human beings. Can you speak about that, that those explorations and what you've discovered along the way? Sure. Um, so, Yeah, I've done a lot of research. I've talked to um, education um, uh, professionals. I've visited many uh, schools and other types of learning centers in different parts of the country. I've talked to many parents um, and uh, also children. Um, And basically, I think it comes down to customization um, because people are all different and yet the conventional and I, I don't usually refer to it as traditional because it's not really traditional if you look at the big enough you know uh, picture so um, but the conventional education model is not really geared to cater to individuals it's geared to cater to the imaginary average person that doesn't really exist. (laughs) Um, And so all of the different strengths and, you know, interests and preferences that um, different people, different individuals will have within a group, they're sort of um, just kind of 
overlooked in the conventional education model. And it forces people to basically just try and be standardized units, which humans are not. Um, and for some people that's, you know, good enough because they're, they're close enough to what is being offered um, or, or they're willing to go along with what's being offered and they're not, you know, bothered enough by it uh, for one reason or another. But for other people, um, it can just really start to be an issue because it's um, so different from either um, you know, where they're at in the moment in terms of um, abilities, um, either on the slower side or uh, faster side, or their interests. You know, they may be interested in something very passionately at the moment, but what's being taught in the moment as part of their curriculum is something so completely different that, you know, um, it, it's, you know, the frustration builds up because they can't learn about what they are interested in. And um, so it, it's sort of a mismatch between individuals and customization versus standardization. Can you give some examples of where the match is correct? Like some examples of schools or um, mm -hmm. co collectives that are actually organizing mm -hmm. around the needs, desires, aspirations, and abilities of children? Sure. So on the micro scale, an example would be a family that is um, pursuing independent learning, AKA homeschooling. Um, I mean, the, the term homeschooling has sort of become appropriated to be applied to school-led um, distance learning, but in the sense of independent learning, um, at the family level, that would be an example where um, parents can very much tailor things to an individual child. Um, they can be very responsive to um, what that child um, is driven to learn at, at you know, any given point in time, how quickly or how slowly they're driven to learn it. Um, they can pivot um, as the situation changes. Um, and then as you introduce more and more children into the equation, I mean, it does become uh, significantly more complex with each new child, you know, that's introduced. But uh, there are um, schools such as the Sudbury schools or the Agile Learning Centers um, that uh, do, a version of this um, for larger groups of children um, where um, the learning is based on a consensual model where uh, the child consents and even um, requests to learn about something. And uh, so it's sort of like having a menu of options and self-selection where the children self-select into you know, uh, what to spend their time on and how and where, you know, where within the school um, campus, like they don't have to be, you know, sitting in one space, you know, 
the whole day and have, you know, uh, recess at a certain time and so on. It's much more fluid and organic and self-selected and consent based, um, based on the children being active participants in their education and self-directing um, a lot of it, not necessarily all of it. I mean, there are, um, it, it's, it's a whole spectrum um, of, of um, customization. There are places where there's a lot of, there, where there's a great deal of freedom, then there are places where um, there are certain requirements. You have to be um, here for, you know, learning these things at these times, but that only takes up, you know, some small fraction of the day and the rest of the day is open to do basically um, electives where everything becomes, or everything else in depending on the program, becomes an elective. Um, and so there's really, there, there's really no one way to do this. It's quite the um, spectrum of, of customization. Let me ask you this and how you might respond, because I'm, I'm sure you've gotten pushback, because uh, I've heard it the same, where people say, okay, that's great. Child might be interested in X, Y, or Z, but they need to learn how to read. They need to learn how to write. They need to learn how to do whatever the thing of the day is for children to succeed in the business space mm-hmm. once they graduate school. Mm-hmm. Um, how might you argue against that position or that concern that people might have? Well, most children are driven, if, if left to their own devices, are motivated to become functioning, contributing um, participants in society. I mean, they're not, few people are driven to be, you know, just um, uh, like um, non-participants. I mean, if, if something is truly necessary um, and uh, is required in order to function in society, children will naturally be motivated to acquire that knowledge and those skills. Otherwise, they'll see themselves fall further behind compared to their peers. Um, they won't be able to do a lot of things in society. So it's a matter of starting out with the um, overall goals and working backwards. Um, and the goals may be different for different children. I mean, um, and then you work backwards from the goals and, you know, what kind of knowledge and skills are needed in order to attain the next step of the goal and in order to eventually become, you know, a fully functional, uh, content member of society. Um, so, you know, most people wouldn't really have to be forced to read if left to their own devices and if reading is truly, you know, necessary, which it pretty much is in our society uh, in order to be a part of society. I mean, um, it's like, you know, children don't have to be forced to learn to walk. (laughs) Mm -hmm. They don't have to be, you know, forced to to do a lot of things before age five, um, you know, or, you know, before they get sent to school. Um, they just were driven to learn and that same drive can continue um, in other areas. 
would a child all things being equal <clears throat> gain the same skills as a child in conventional school maybe later but better and let me give you an example so, you know because i you know i i keep hearing the push for kids to read younger and younger and younger mm-hmm. um or to do, learn math younger 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 you know the kind of mm-hmm. the basic the r's um and i'm wondering like okay developmentally is that even appropriate and if a child's motivated by their own innate curiosity and interest, and if they eventually get to learning how to read, comprehend what they're reading, doing math, doing science, that they, I'm guessing, would probably do it at a time that's more appropriate to them and learn uh-huh. it in their own way. So they might actually learn it better than someone doing rote learning at a younger age. Would that be accurate? Possibly. Um, I... I don't know about better necessarily, but Mm. certainly um, Dr. Peter Gray, a developmental um, psychologist uh, Mm. affiliated with um, Boston College has uh, done a lot of research in this area. And uh, he found that children who were given the freedom to learn to read at their own pace, learn to read anytime between age four and age 14 among the um, people that he studied, that he surveyed. And so that is a pretty wide range. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. what he also found is that um, the children who learned later were not negatively affected. If I think this is probably contingent on whether or not they were shamed about it in any way. Um, mm-hmm. Because shame, you know, has a very kind of powerful negative uh, force to it. But um, basically, he said, you know, after that, you really couldn't tell the difference between you wouldn't be able to know who had learned to read mm-hmm. at a younger age and who had learned to read at a later age. One um, real out, I, I think, outlier example that I heard of uh, was someone who had gone to the Summerhill self-directed school in the United Kingdom. Um, Mm -hmm. It was a school that was started, uh, I think it was in the 1920s, and it's still very much around. And um, one graduate uh, from decades ago was interviewed um, about his experience, and he basically took the freedom to a considerable extent and he just didn't bother to learn to read even um, when he had graduated, when he left um, at age 19, he still couldn't read, but but then he traveled the world and eventually not being able to read posed enough of a headache for him. Uh, I think it was while he was in Japan and having to fill out some forms and um, because people find ways to work around not mm-hmm. being able to read, right, you know, right. up until the point at which it's so frustrating that the act of learning to read starts to feel less frustrating than, you know, what they're dealing with. And so that balance was finally tipped for him. And he spent a few months, he learned to read. And he then ended up, um, I believe he eventually got a master's degree. He became an industrial consultant for businesses around the world. I mean, this is someone who learned to read, (laughs) you know, 
uh-huh. after his teen years. So yes. it's it's the importance of the age at which reading happens is just, I think, far more exaggerated than um, what experiences of people would suggest is warranted. And a lot of that, I think, is because of the standardized curriculum that is followed in conventional education settings, because it assumes, again, it's, it's targeted for the mythical average person. And so um, it assumes that all children will learn to read by a certain age. And so they base the curriculum on that assumption. And so, yes, if a child who is put into a setting that follows that curriculum, they will be struggling and kind of falling further and further behind if they do not learn to read by the age at which it's assumed they will know how to read. But that's a design feature of the system. That's not something mm-hmm. you know, that's just based on the natural, <laughs> you know, learning and the bell curve of, you know, the learning among humans. Let me ask you uh, two other questions, things that I've heard people uh, argue against kind of this child-centered, semi unschooling approach to learning. Um, one, one would be from a class question and it might be something like, well, if you're middle class or upper class, then you have all the resources and the time and the tutors and the community and, and the, all, the, all the resources necessary to support any child doing unschooling um, or, and or you could afford to send your child to this kind of particular um, child-centered school. If you're lower on the economic ladder, you don't have the resources, you don't have the time to support a child at home to learn and or the resources to send a child to, you know, a, a private school. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> but I do believe there are actually are quite a few examples of unschooling being done in lower middle class mm-hmm. and uh, poor families. And there are ways to get kids in some of these schools who don't have a lot of money. Can you speak mm-hmm. to a little bit to that as well? Yeah. So, um, I mean, the way our society is structured economically, it's there's no getting around the fact that certain things are going to be more accessible to people with more money because that's just how our economic system is structured. But in terms of individuals, absolutely there are individuals who fall into the lower tiers in terms of financial assets um, who have done uh, self-directed education, either through independent learning um, or through enrollment in um, some type of learning center or schools. Um, some of these learning centers and schools are, are supported. Um, they're nonprofits in some cases and are supported by donations. And um, so, uh, and, and in some cases, even if they're not nonprofits, um, they will not turn people away for uh, a lack of financial resources. They um, run the tuition figures in such a way that um, you know some of the people who are lucky enough to be able to pay full tuition, um, their you know part of their tuition can be used to subsidize 
people who are in less fortunate positions. Mm -hmm. And so there are definitely examples um, uh, of families and organizations that um, are catering to a variety of, you know, a very broad range of socioeconomic strata. Another pushback that I do hear too is, um, yeah, but what about socialization? <laughs> Which I, I know you'd laugh because I'm sure you heard that a million times as well. <laughs> uh, well, it, so then the question is, how does one define socialization? Does one define it by, um, you know, segregating children with peers of exactly the same age all day, every day, uh, you know, with one or however many adult uh, teachers, or do you define socialization as having the ability and opportunities to mix socially with people of different ages, whether they're children or adults, um, and have meaningful conversations with a range of different adults in the community, whether it's through um, just participating in everyday life activities with parents or whether it's through enrollment in uh, programs that are run by, um, you know, this adult or that adult, you know, um, there are um, clubs and, um, you know, just, all sorts of hobby groups, um, sports groups. Um, there, there are so many opportunities mm -hmm. for socialization that um, it's really kind of funny that that question still gets asked. <laughs> yeah, but it does, yeah. yes. I mean, yeah, yeah right. Yeah. <clears throat> sure. Um, let me ask you another question. So, and this is kind of more of a broad socio-cultural kind of 30,000 foot view. And this, is, and this is what I like to state when I talk about unschooling or democratic free schools or some of these kind of alternative models versus the conventional model. And, and I would like your opinion, whether this is accurate and how you might say it or say it differently, that it, there seems to be a mixed match because you know, America is supposed to be self-governing. Americans are supposed to be, American citizens are supposed to be self-governing individuals. However, our education system is very authoritarian and makes us objects of someone else authority like the teacher in front of the room we, we move by the bell we break things up in 50 minute subjects uh -huh. that's how we do it we move from one to the other it's very industrial very robotic uh -huh. it seems to me that that does not create self-governing whole healthy fully functioning human beings that model it seems like it more like it more creates cogs in an industrial government machine uh -huh versus like the model that you're talking about, which is really about self-governance. Like people, mm -hmm. children learn to govern themselves, follow their own interests, work collaboratively with others, mm -hmm. um, which seems to be a much more, it's a model more reflective mm -hmm. of the intent of our country, which is self-governing. Mm -hmm. Would you agree to something like that or, or might you say it differently or how might you see it? Yeah, um, so I think it's interesting the way you phrased it because you said um, Americans are supposed to be, I think you said supposed to be yeah. you know, self-governing. So I think <laughs> emphasis on supposed to be, well, yeah. um, because 
there are a lot of arguments to be made about the fact that no, we are actually not self-governing and um, that it's a, um, what's the term? Um, it's escaping me at the moment, but um, an oligarchy basically system. Um, and so I think the education and governance and economic systems are all kind of parts of a, there's a feedback loop going on there. And so I absolutely think that the education model with um, the kind of um, requirement to follow authorities that other people have chosen to put in positions of authority um, is very much reflective of the governance system and the economic system. And so I think it is all very congruent. Now, is it congruent with the ideals of the Declaration <laughs> of Independence in the Constitution? No, I would say it is not. Mm -hmm. um, and conventional schooling really only came to be um, on a mass scale in the middle of the 1800s. So it dates after the founding of the United States by quite a bit. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I mean, if, if, um, if the idea is reinforced enough that um, you need to just do as you're told, you should have no say in, you know, what you're learning or how and so on. I mean, it, it does certainly create a certain, um, or it tends to create, uh, depending on how much pushback there is from the individual, um, a, a willingness to go along with a lot of things um, rather than look to oneself as the, you know, being um, empowered to affect things. It, it, I think, does create um, or is likely to create um, a feeling of looking outward from oneself for direction for um, reinforcement, for um, validation. Um, so it's very kind of other regarding in that sense, mm -hmm. as opposed to you know, fostering self-sovereignty and taking accountability and responsibility for oneself and for yeah. one's community, because it's never just about oneself, by the way. I mean, like, you know, even though the term that is often used as self-directed education. It's not, it's not all about oneself. I mean, you know, a person only exists within the context of a community. So um, the needs of others also have to be taken into account, but it's about taking responsibility for oneself rather than expecting others to take responsibility <laughs> for you if you are able to take responsibility for yourself. It's, it, it would seem to me that the self-directed approach creates kind of a, more likely creates the opportunity for children to be autonomous, but interconnected. Interconnected, yes. Interdependent, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. kind of the, what I tend to call um, 
So in, in the hub micro academy that we launched um, last fall, the facilitators and I often talk about uh, striking a balance between the me and the we. And nice. we think of it as kind of um, modeling a culture that, I mean, it's all fractals, like the culture within the micro academy is just a microcosm of the kind of culture that can exist within a larger community um, where there's a healthy balance between um, meeting the interests and needs of individuals, but yet not 100% because there are other people around. And, right, right, right. You, know, you have to um, take everyone's needs and abilities and interests into account. But you, so there's a lot of negotiation and kind of finding um, the balance um, where people feel like they have enough of a say and enough of a, you know, ability to contribute and enough autonomy, but at the same time feel part of something bigger too. Well, that's why I think, for instance, uh, um, the democratic free schools as a model is very interesting. Mm -hmm. Because from what I understand of it, the children, depending on their age and stage, do participate in the in generating the rules that they have to follow in implementing mm -hmm. the, the the rules if they're if they're broken. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. so you know there is a much there is a we and an I as you mm -hmm. as you clearly stated, and I would imagine it just it makes for so much better collaboration and thoughtfulness in terms of human relationships than having this kind of authoritarian model where people just tell you how to be mm -hmm. instead of you trying to figure it out with other people how to be <laughs> with other yeah people. and i mean i think it's best done with guidance of course from older mm -hmm. wiser well sometimes actually it's it's not the older people that are the wiser but let's <laughs> just say you know the the um with guidance but um uh, yeah, it, it creates um, buy-in, you know, if someone understands the rules, if they had a hand in helping decide the rule, or at least had the opportunity to get involved, um, not everyone wants to, you know, get involved in all the discussions about every little you know, thing, but mm -hmm. some, you know, people do. And at least, you know, if people really object, they have the opportunity to, to voice objections. Um, and then people are much more invested in them and um, they kind of tend to police themselves kind of, you know, through peer um, pressure, but in a positive way. I mean, peer pressure has a negative connotation because of the way it often manifests in, um, these kind of artificial environments that are created where age groups are siloed and there's a hierarchy. And um, so it creates all sorts of um, behaviors that one doesn't find um, in kind of a more natural mix of people where people can flow in and out and mix with different people and where there isn't like a strict hierarchy, et cetera. But anyway, so peer pressure can, um, also manifest in a very positive way to, um, to maintain a healthy culture and um, make sure that any behavior that is um, uh, harmful to individuals or to the group as a whole, which often are you know, 
two sides of the same coin um, is is kept in check um, because if people are uh, acting harmfully, you know they'll be um, you know either shunned or you know uh, if there are rules um, that are being broken, they can be um, you know depending on the processes at any given organization, you know, there might be a judicial committee meeting called to discuss something and so on, but it tends to be much more of a restorative justice type of situation rather Mm -hmm. than a punitive situation. Um, So, you know, how do we, if if someone was um, harmed, how do we try to help that person be made whole again, rather than someone was harmed, let's punish the other person. Now you've got two people harmed, you know? Right, right, right. You had mentioned the hub, which I mentioned at the very beginning of the our conversation when I introduced you. Uh, talk to us about the hub. What is it? Yeah, so it um, it's envisioned to eventually be an all ages co learning, uh, co working space. Uh, it was originally intended to be purely a physical space, and then COVID happened, <laughs> and so. Um, uh, I pivoted and started it out as an online hub. Um, and the idea um, was to just start out with a narrow age range, um, get that really kind of solid and then eventually expand. So right now it's for nine to, it'll be for nine to 13 year olds uh, in the fall right now, it's nine to 12, but it'll be nine to 13 um, as of next fall. And there is a micro academy that meets two days a week. Um, and it's a highly self-directed, but um, very much facilitated also uh, experience. So it's um, multidisciplinary um, and very creative uh, with a lot of uh, freedom to go in different directions depending on uh, the interests of the group and so on, but operating within a certain framework and structure also that's guided by the facilitators. So it's sort of um, trying to strike a balance, <laughs> again, not just between the me and the we, but between structure and freedom, um, because a lot of creativity really tends to blossom when there are certain kind of framework parameters, when it's not just pure freedom. Um, so there is kind of, a, some structure to it, but the structure can always be, um, discussed and is, you know, uh, changeable if there's a compelling reason to change any of it. So it puts a lot of, um, power into the hands of, um, all the participants, um, and expects them to, you know, be, uh, active participants, not just passively doing things. Um, so, so everyone is a co-creator of the experience and they've been doing um, all sorts of things from um, uh, writing um, stories together um, and uh, learning about mythology, uh, playing geography games together. Um, they created an entire world uh, last term that was their big um, multi-month project. And each child, um, we tried to, again, kind of looping back to what I said at the beginning about everyone being an individual. Um, the idea is to look at what the strengths are 
and interests are of each person and come up with um, different roles within a project that different children can play so that they're building on their strengths, but also, you know, at the same time learning to kind of um, manage any weaknesses that might be hindering them. Uh, and then they kind of uh, work together to create something that they've all agreed to create, they hold each other accountable. So a lot of it is also about building the, the culture um, of community and um, kind of coexistence, co-creation. And so that's the micro academy. And then there are um, some a la carte options that'll be expanded in future years as the um, age range is also expanded and eventually um, hopefully by 2022, there will also be a physical space and um, uh, that can be built on to eventually have a menu of different um, cohort programs and then more a la carte, just standalone elective um, things for different ages. Um, every, you know, age from, you know, just young, um, you know, let's say five-year-olds to, you know, 95-year-olds <laughs> because, you know, why Life separate people, um, yeah. in, you know, by age yeah. if there are um, opportunities for them to learn from each other, to, um, again, socialize um, together, to, um, you, there might be instances when a 10-year-old and a 50-year-old might both be, you know, interested in learning the same thing. So, you know, why uh, limit it? to, you know, this class is only for this specific age and, mm -hmm. um, you know, just kind of removing all those artificial boundaries, um, still having age ranges where it makes sense, like for a cohort experience, you know, as kind of a homeroom type of experience and so on, but also having enough flexibility to have mingling among ages, you know, based more on interests and kind of more organic uh, interactions, mentorship opportunities could then arise and um, so on. That's fantastic. So let's come back to like now. So it's nine to 12 mm -hmm. year olds. Are these for only for homeschooling families or if your kids in a private or public school, can they participate in some of these programs? Like how does that work? So uh, for the micro academy, just because of the times when it's scheduled, um, I think it would be uh, really not very practical if a child is also enrolled in a school to be able to participate. So really it's um, geared toward independent learning families um, for the micro academy. Um, the a la carte options though, um, it, you know, we're trying to schedule those um, at different times um, on different days and so on. So, um, and we've only just kind of started offering those. So that part of the program will expand in future years and that will be open to anyone, um, you know, whether they're also affiliated with a school or not, it doesn't really matter. So, yeah. That's great. And I know you want people to steal your model. Yes, yes, I do. <laughs> you know, uh, lay out your vision for me, you know, five to 10 years from now. Uh, and perhaps, you know, as unfortunate and all the destruction from COVID has been, it, it seems to me that a lot of families are, and others are rethinking the whole education system. Mm -hmm. 
because we're recognizing the limits of it and that most children get done within a you know couple hours what they mm-hmm. seemingly took all day to do right um so you know five to ten years from now what what could you imagine education looking like in our country as it maybe hopefully evolves yeah ways? so i mean there are lots of ways it could go but um I could see one possibility being um, a network of, um, I mean, a loosely affiliated network of hubs, educational hubs that are sort of a mix of um, a school and a community center and a co-working hub where people can gather and take advantage of educational opportunities, but in a very customized modular way so that um, people who would like a very consistent cohort experience can sign up for, you know, however many days of the week they would like, um, you know, between one and five days a week for, you know, something more in depth where they're giving up some of their freedom to do things exactly as they wish, but what they gain is the group and cohort experience. Um, and then um, having also just a la carte options like, you know, um, a science lab or a makerspace workshop, a, a language class or whatever. So, so basically um, it can be like a menu where people choose, you know, they can choose everything from the already created meal that's been put together for them, <laughs> um, like something that's already curated where they don't have to really put many pieces together. But they also, if they're more, um, if they have more niche interests or more um, DIY tendencies, they can kind of put together an experience that suits them, you know, much more specifically. Um, so just kind of creating like a menu um, option. There was a place in, or is, I'm not sure if it's still there, in Brooklyn that called itself the Classeteria. And I think that's kind of a interesting way to, you know, think of it, kind of like going to a cafeteria and being able to pick and choose and, um, or perhaps more so going to, um, a farmer's market where there are prepared meals, but then there are also ingredients and you can kind of put things together however you want, or you can buy the prepared meals. You can, you know, commune with other people um, and so on, but applied to education. Nice. Well, I like your vision. And, you know, my take on this is that the more and more families are recognizing this as, as a true alternative and actually moving this in this direction while unfortunately at the same time, our, our broader education, conventional education system seems to get more and more concentrated and authoritarian. <laughs> so it's like almost two streams, one heading yeah. from our perspective in the wrong direction and the other other stream in our culture is heading in the right direction. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you've, you know, obviously I, I want people to check out your hub. What's, can you share with us the URL? Sure, it's www.thehub.community. And it's all in there. There's also um, a page I added recently there um, of resources because um, 
you know, for parents who are new to these kinds of um, paradigms and they're wondering, you know, well, what else, you know, can we do with the time? Um, I uh, put together a page of uh, ideas for everything from um, like curriculum in a box, but where you can kind of pick and choose what elements you want to do and at what pace to all sorts of just niche um, kind of uh, programs uh, that exist out there just to give people just a sense of just how many options Mm -hmm. there are out there and with as little or as much um, kind of um, already curated for the parents as as they want you know so if um, some parents want to get more involved or if they want to be less involved you know there are all sorts of opportunities to kind of piece things together um, to create something that is um, customized to an individual child. Nice. Now, for people who need to kind of understand philosophically this new approach, you've mm-hmm. done quite a bit of writing. Yeah. Can you give us a URL or two of places people can go to like study this more? Sure. Um, so, on my website, um, there are links to some of the most popular articles I've written, plus compilations. Um, so that's www.lubavangelova.com. So L-U-B-A-V-A-N-G-E-L-O-V-A.com. And uh, there are also um, websites such as www.alternativestoschool.com that have links to many resources, um, articles, books, blogs. Um, There is so much out there um, once you start digging. Um, And that's actually one of the um, (laughs) things is that sometimes people actually get a little overwhelmed by just how much there is out there. But um, there are also people who, you know, if, if needed, can kind of, who have been there, done that, and can lend a helping hand, um, either in Facebook groups or their consultants, um, and so on, if, if someone wants to go that route, um, to get some hand-holding to help, you know, cut through to what is most relevant to their particular family. Um, so, yeah, there's, there's a lot out there. That's fantastic. Well, good. I'll make sure to include all those links in the show notes. And uh, Luba, it's great to talk to you. Okay, you too. Thank Thank you for your time. Yeah, sure. And um, I wish you much luck and success with the hub. And I definitely hope lots of people here domestically in the States and across the world still have this idea. Yes, (laughs) let's hope so. All right, thank you. (laughs) Thank you, Luba. All right, bye.